the end of Matthew 23, and uh, we'll finish up this loaded little passage. Matthew 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills is killing the prophets, and stones is stoning those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, barren, empty. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God, I just uh, pray that now as we finish up this portion of Scripture and we look at uh, the, the final part of this uh, really hard-hitting um, section where you've just indicted, you've given this scathing indictment on those who are to shepherd your people and, and they had failed miserably, leading people astray, not just into little error, but it, indeed leading them into out of the kingdom, shutting heaven's door on them and, he, and becoming evil evangelists and just go down that list and it's just so... No wonder you were angry. And Lord, uh, because of that, Israel had failed in its mission to be a light to the nations. And your heart was heavy. And we see, though, even in these closing words, we see yet your compassion and mercy and even hope. And Lord, as we read this, I pray that, uh, that you would use this to change our hearts. Even these three verses, Lord, to to grow our understanding of you. And Lord, not only that, but to grow a heart of compassion in us as well. We're we're in a world where it's easy to uh, see people as enemies instead of realizing our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness. This is a spiritual battle. And Lord, so help us to see people differently. Lord, to to have the clear message that they need you and without you, they're going to hell. They're under judgment and condemnation without you. That has to be clear in our message. But Lord, at the same time, never to get angry at non-Christians, the unsaved, Lord, but to have a heart of compassion that agonizes like you show us here. Lord, we, we, we can't wait for you to return to finish this this grand plan of redemption where you bring in people from every tribe, language, and nation and and, and Lord, you, you, and we have this just incredible reunion where, where you prove that you are God and you have all along, but this is the culmination and we long for that return where evil is, is finally put down, sin is done away with. We long for that. But God, in the meantime, as long as you tarry, God, may we be a church that is clear in his message that is overflowing with your love and is, is tireless in our efforts to love people and to point them to you. So, God, we pray that, uh, that this morning that you would be working in us. We want that desperately. So thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've, uh, we're at a, a particular or just a, a kind of a, a weird time in, in Jesus' life because he's been, things have been ramping up over three years, but it's getting really intense in the life of Jesus in, in our walk with him. This is the Passion Week. 
Again, passion, we use that word to mean like, oh, I'm passionate about something. But back then, it's called the Passion Week because it was the week where his suffering, it was going to culminate in his suffering. So it's called that. And things are intensifying. The, 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 you know, the forces of darkness are, are ramping up. And it's not just the scribes and Pharisees, but it's literally Satan is behind this, wanting to get that Messiah on the cross, thinking that would be his victory, conquering God's Messiah. So things are ramping up, and here he is, Jesus has, after confrontation over several days, it began with a triumphal entry, and these Pharisees and scribes, the Sadducees, hearing the people call that Jesus, who they hated already, calling him the Messiah, singing praises from Psalm 118. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, save us. That happened either Sunday or Monday, depending on who you talk to. Then the next day, he goes in and he just absolutely cleans out the temple, embarrassing the religious leaders. He called them frauds by his action. You've turned it into a den of thieves, he said. He had a zeal for his father's house. They had proven to be fakes, these religious leaders. And so they confront him on Wednesday and they say, what right do you have to do this? By what authority? That was how this whole thing kicked off. We have chapters 21, 22, and 23, Jesus interacting with them. And we have, uh, you know, he, he, they're, they're trying to test him to try to, you know, discredit him with the people when they ask him these three questions. And he answers them and they're like dumbfounded. They have nothing to say. And then he asks them a question proving out of the scriptures that one, they didn't know. And two, there was actually proof that the Messiah was going to be someone more than just a man. And then he, he turns to the crowds. Again, on the Temple Mount, the religious center of the universe. And he turns to the hundreds and thousands of people and he warns them, watch out for these fake shepherds. They're evil. Then he turns to them and he pronounces seven woes on them condemning them, convicting them, judging them. Bam, 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 you're leading people to hell. Wow. Pretty heavy, huh? But he's, he, is, he has righteous anger over what these false shepherds had done. The people had been led astray. God's plan for Israel is be, to be a light to the nations, to draw people to, the God, to their God, the true God. They were to be on display among the nations. That was their goal. God's point in picking them was not just, oh, I think I'll pick them and just really bless them. No, He had a purpose for them. And, that's, and they had failed miserably. We see that at the beginning of this day, he, he had cursed a fig tree. And we know from Scripture that's one of the pictures of Israel was a fig tree. And He says, you haven't produced any fruit. It's cursed and it withered. And it, we end up seeing in this passage, he says, your house, he's referring, again, in their mind, he'd be referring to the temple, but it's more than what he says, it's desolate, it's barren, it's empty. And, and so we just see that the, he, it's done. There, the three years of ministry is coming to a close, and he is pronouncing judgment on the Jews. Yet, there is hope. And that's the last verse we'll look at to verse 39. There is hope in the midst of this, but we also can't miss this. And that's what I looked at last week was the, the, the anguish 
that Jesus portrayed. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It was the king's lament. And, and it's so important that we see this because he has pronounced judgment on Israel and judgment was going to come in a big way in less than 40 years. Hundreds of thousands died in Jerusalem itself, but in the nation, millions under the Romans. When the Romans came to put down the, the revolt that started in 66 AD, by 70 AD, they had finished coming back in and, and putting down the revolt, these Romans, and it was brutal. The slaughter was brutal. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's just a, it's, it's, it, the anguish that's on Jesus' heart when he's saying this. We see it in, in Luke when he first, in the, even the triumphal entry, it just says that he sobbed. Oh, that I would draw you to myself, but you rejected me. Oh, that you would know the times of, of, of my coming and that you would turn and yet you weren't willing. We see that here. And so I, I focused last week on this phrase when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the, the city that, that kills the prophets, stones those sent to him. I wanted to gather you like, a, like a, a hen gathers its chicks when there's danger. I want to protect you, and yet you weren't willing. So I raised the issue last week because this, again, at different times in different places, and even in, in going through Matthew, there's been passages where it sounds like, wait, you're telling the Jews, because Jesus had just commanded them in, in you know, just a few, few breaths earlier, He'd commanded, hey, go ahead and fill up your cup of wrath. You're going to kill me? Go ahead and do it. He commanded them to do it. We're going to see in just, you know, the next day, he tells, he commands Judas, hey, go out. Go and, go and fulfill the, the thing you're supposed to do. He's the, he's the prophesied son of perdition. It was prophesied that Judas would do what he did, betraying his best friend. And yet, he's condemned for doing it. Here, I sent these, these prophets to you, yet you weren't willing. So I raised up this issue last week of, okay, we've got God's sovereignty where he has his plans and he's going to accomplish it at all. There's nothing that's out of his control. Nothing. And yet the other side is that we have man's ability to choose and to respond to God or to reject God. How do you put those, things, those two things together? Judas, for instance, he was the prophesied one who would betray the Savior, and yet he is condemned for his actions. How do you put those two together? Do you, get, you see what I'm going at? And we talked about that, and, and ultimately, here's, here's my shorthand answer. I don't know how you do, <laughs> but I know Scripture is clear. Now, I'm going to raise this. Does man have a free will according to the Bible? The answer is no. This is the hard part, okay? Scripture is clear. Before you get saved, what kind of will do you have? It's sinful. It's evil. It's dead. Read Romans 3, 9 through 20. It is the most, it couldn't be clearer of the judge's verdict on our ability to choose spiritual life. 
I'm just telling you what Scripture says, folks. That's why it's so important we understand this. We need God to step in. But that's what's so clear in Scripture is that He does, doesn't He? He intervenes. And if we can go to the slides. Oh, I kind of ran through all that. Let's go to the next slide. We need His rescue. We do. And praise God that He does. When we start talking about election and predestination, I know it's true because the Bible is clear. I mean, I asked you to read Ephesians 1 through 3. It couldn't be clearer. And if you read Romans 9 through 11 there, boy, there's some heavy things in there too. And ultimately, we have to believe it. But here's the deal. In this whole conversation, people say, well, God's not fair. No, He's the most fair person in the whole universe. Because if he, was being, if he was being fair, what should we get? So we also find out he's merciful. He holds back that which we do deserve. Do you, do you want his mercy? I do. We also find he's gracious. He gives that which we don't deserve. Isn't that cool? So when we, when we get into these conversations, I have these conversations with people all the time you know, about predestination election, and, I, and I'll, I'll boil it down to this, okay? I, I'm actually going to do a five-week series on this in the summer, and again, it's not going to get ultra-complicated, but I'm going to walk through some points to help us think clearly about this, but I want you to know this right here. Go to the next slide. Actually, the next slide. We'll just go right to it. We have the two sides as man's role and God's role. How do we put those two together? I don't know perfectly how to do it. There's books written on it. Go to the next slide. But here's what I do know. God is the most fair, righteous, just, and loving person in all the universe. You agree with me on that? Okay, I hope so. <laughs> if, you, if you don't, let's just open up our scriptures and read. He has no evil in him. He has no sin in him. He knows everything everything, the end from the beginning. And by the way, are we given everything about how to figure this out in Scripture? Everything? No, we don't. We're just given enough to know what we need to know. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. He doesn't tell us how to change the oil on our car. Everything we know to to relate to God and to walk with Him, that's in Scripture. Everything we need to know. Is there more to it? Yes. Matter of fact, uh, when we get to heaven and we have perfect minds now and no more sin, we have to remember this. We are still finite creatures. We had a beginning. We will be learning for all eternity. We won't know everything automatically. That's just That's just not going to happen. We will be learning for all eternity. We will know better than we know now for sure, but we still won't be able to know everything because God's infinite and we're not. We are creatures. But God is good and righteous and just and loving. He's more loving than anyone who ever loved. When you say, you know, I love my kids, and, or, you know, what about those people? And so I just, you know, what about them? Your heart bleeds for those who, you know, live in a terrible situation. Guess what? God loves them more than you do. And God is going to save those he's going to save in his love. 
So remember that when we talk about this is that we, we have to let Scripture inform this where we don't understand everything. We have to remind ourselves of what's true of God. He's the most righteous, just, and loving person. He will glorify Himself, and I will not question His character. So one, inform yourself from Scripture, but then at the end of it is that we can't question His character, can we? The minute that Job did it in the book of Job, he says, yeah, I want to put you on trial now. Chapter 38, God steps and says, oh, I have some questions for you, Job. And after four chapters, Job says, oh, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Who am I? And that's exactly the point. God is righteous. He knows everything. He's never on trial. We have to rest in knowing how good he is and how great he is and how loving he is loving. I can say that, I, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. There's several passages that God sent his son in love to die for us. His motivation is his love. He's full of compassion. We see that all over the Old Testament. One of the things is, you know, when you think about it, when, when Israel, I'll just use this as an example, after Solomon Okay, King Solomon, his reign was done in 930 A.D., and the kingdom divided, and there were evil kings in the northern part of Israel. Okay, not one of them was a righteous king. Not one of them should have been king because he wasn't from the line of the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. When could God have squished that northern empire? Immediately. And yet he gave them 200 more years. And he sent prophet after prophet to call them to repentance. And then finally in 722, they were judged. That's just one example of so many in, in the Old Testament where God is faithfully working with people, patiently working with people over lifetimes, generations, displaying his mercy. And then we see it most clearly in Jesus Christ who said, when you see me, you see the Father. He said that to Philip in John 14. And we see here in even this passage, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that has stoned the prophets and is going to continue to. The next, within 48 hours, he was going to be on a cross because of the religious leaders at Jerusalem. And then within a few weeks, or maybe two months, we're going to have the first martyr right outside the walls of Jerusalem, Stephen. And it continued, James the Just, and you just go down through the list. And yet, he anguished over this. He's full of compassion. We hear his calls to sinners to turn back to him to repent. And I read some passages on that last week. These are real calls from Jesus to return, repent. We hear it afterwards. Paul's preaching. The call is always to unbelievers to repent, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. If those are real calls. We know that these are real calls, and but man is accountable for not responding appropriately. We know that God must intervene so that we can respond to him. The Bible is clear that if you aren't a Christian, what kind of heart do you have? It's, it's, it's some, to some passage, it's a fleshy heart when it's talking about it's full of lust, but there's the, the clear thing when it comes to salvation, it's the heart of stone. It's an unresponsive dead heart. 
And for us to be able to respond, God has to give us a new heart, regenerating us so that we can respond. He has to give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can see. All those things have to come from God. The faith to believe, where does the faith even come from? It, that even comes from God. You've been saved by grace, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. When you are born again, we'll use the terminology from John 3, that birth is from the Spirit. And, and John 1 tells us we weren't born of our own will, we were born of God's will. When you look at these passages, like, how do you put all this stuff together? You know, this is where we need to do this. Trust God, okay? I mean, I've, I'm in seminary. Boy, did we go round and round as students, you know, election, predestination, free will, and all that. And uh, I was, after a while, I was the first one to step out of these, just going, you know what? I know what it says, and I'm just going to trust God to be the one who's the most loving and the most fair. But here's the deal. I will never take credit for what he did. If it were up to me, I would still be lost in my sin because I have what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 19. I have a desperately evil and wicked heart, a wanting heart. And I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it. And if you get in my way of my wants, watch out. That's my heart. If the Lord didn't give me a new one, by the grace of God. Okay, all that being said, that that's an important concept for us to, again, if, if it's not totally settled in your minds and hearts, that's okay. <laughs> but these are the things in Scripture that you read that if you haven't wrestled with this before, you need to start. But let me tell you where you need to end up is trust that God is God and He's good and He's loving and He saves. Okay? Is it okay to end up there for now? All right. You're with me then? Good. So let's, let's move into the second part where he says, there's three things that everybody says, but see your house is left to you desolate. Okay, where are my notes? Here we go. Notice the change here, by the way. When he cleared out the temple, what was his response of, or what was the ex explanation of why Jesus did this earlier? Why, what motivated Jesus to clear out the temple? Well, it was definitely the love of God, but it's not just, it, it was a specific phrase. The zeal for my father's house. Okay, what it was, whose house was it? My father's house. But what does he say? See, your house is left to you desolate. He's changed. The verdict is in. You got to understand that uh, one of the prophets, Ezekiel, I believe, oh my goodness, I just went blank. But in the Old Testament, just before the Babylonians came in, in about 586 B.C., were coming in, and they were going to absolutely crush the temple. One of the prophets had a vision, it's recorded, where he, he watched the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, leave the temple. It went out of the Holy of Holies, out of the temple courts, and went step by step. And he was watching this. He's going, what's happening? It's that the glory of God has left the temple. And it went out through the eastern gate eventually. And it was symbolic of God saying, look, this house has been so run by evil shepherds and all these abominations for hundreds of years now, I'm done. Because in the Jewish mind, we have the temple, we're safe. And before they had the temple, before that, matter of fact, they had the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, they carried it out to war and they thought, oh, because we have the Ark of the Covenant, we'll beat the Philistines. And God says, no, the Ark of the Covenant's not your magic charm. I'm the one you need. 
The Ark of the Covenant's not it. And then in Ezekiel, we find that the temple's not why you're going to be protected. You've, you have your fake religious rituals, but you've forsaken me. Because of that, your temple's gone. The glory departed. When Jesus came back, that's one of the amazing pictures that the glory returned. But now, in essence, he's saying, now the glory's gone again, folks. The king pronounced on what is his father's house, it's empty, it's desolate, it's barren now. Now, was he cursing the temple itself, per se? No, because God is God and his worship is always right. Up until Jesus' time, what is the one religion that saved you? Judaism, the, the religion of the Jews, the God of the Jews. Okay, that's what, we called, that's what was called Judaism. After Jesus' time, what was the one religion that saved you? Belief in Jesus as the Messiah. It's not the Jewish religion that centered in there at Jerusalem. They, didn't, they rejected the Messiah. We have Peter, and Peter in front of the Sanhedrin a few weeks later telling the Jewish leaders, look, there's no other name under heaven by which men will be saved, Acts 4.12. He told them, you might know the God, Yahweh, but you rejected the Messiah, therefore you are rejected. What we need to understand here is what's going on is that there's a, a condemnation of the religion that was being done in the temple by who? The religious leaders. He had just condemned them. He had just condemned them. Let me go through my notes here so I stay on track here. He condemned the Jewish leaders and the Judaism that they taught. Again, there's also something else that happens See, your house also referred to the Jews themselves. So it was, the, it was the worship of the Jews and now the Jewish people. You guys understand, you guys ever watch Fiddler on the Roof? So I saw it first when I was in sixth grade and I was like, what is this about? But basically Fiddler on the Roof is a picture of, of, of a Jewish community in Poland in the 1800s. And we have, it's just a, it's a really fun story. I mean, I've seen it again, you know, as I've grown up and I've loved it. But there's this one phrase that is just a great phrase where we see this guy, Tevya. Is that right? Did I say it right, Tevya? Yeah. And he says, he, he's reflecting on, you know, on life and what's going on. And, and he, he says, look, if we're God's people, he was Jewish, if we're God's people, why in the world do we suffer so much? He says this, I know, I know. He's talking to God, you know, this little soliloquy. And he says, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? Right? And, and I have in my notes here, I went and I did some research. There's books on this. When you look at the Jews, God's chosen people for the last 2,000 years, oh my goodness, no other people group in the world has been picked on like them. And when I say picked on, that's, that's an understatement. Persecuted, killed, tortured, expelled from countries. The list is horrendous. And the saddest thing about it is so much has been done by so-called Christians. I was, I've been to Israel a couple times and, and, and we were, I was with Christian groups, you know, Christian tour groups and and one of the things they do is have, have rabbis come in. They're not Christians. They're, they also have Jewish Christians come in and share. It's really awesome. And we meet all sorts of, you know, like 
members of the Neset, their Congress and, and generals and all this, but one of, several of them were rabbis, and one of them said this that was really like, wow, because they knew they were talking to Christians, Gentile Christians, trying to explain, you know, what Judaism is about and history and all this. Just so you, you Christian, Gentile Christians understand why there's been so much hesitancy to even interact with Christians, when you hold up that cross... You need to understand, because of history, the last 2,000 years, they don't see a cross. You know what they see? A sword. The first crusade, 1070, I think it was, called for by the Pope. These knights came, they gathered in France, and before they had even left France, they had killed thousands of Jews. They were Christ killers. The crusade was supposed to go back to, the, to Israel and kick out the, the Muslim hordes that had come in to you know, take over the Holy Land and killing Christians and Jews. And before they'd even left France, they'd killed thousands of Jews. Why? How do you explain that? Where did Jesus say, go kill Jews, go kill anybody? Did he ever tell his disciples to do that? No, the one time there was a sign of, you know, violence when Peter cut off the servant's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll see that tomorrow, you know, in the coming up chapters. What did Jesus do? He says, stop it, Peter. If I wanted to call down legions of angels, I could do it. And he heals the, you know, servant. So all these killings in the name of Christ, of Jew, you know, of Christ killers, the Jews, it's like, what in the world? One of the things, this is an application point, folks, okay, as Christians, we have got to be sensitive to the Jewish people because of the history. You know, many of you probably didn't know that history. I mean, to me to watch and to read and to read some of the sermons by Christians against the Jews. I love Martin Luther. I mean, he was a a man of his time, but God put him there and just an incredible to kick off the Reformation. But towards the end of his life, he wrote a terrible pamphlet on the Jews and their lies, and it was just scathing. You read it, and you're like, how can a man of God say these things? And matter of fact, it was, that was one of the tracks that Hitler used to justify going after the Jews during uh, World War II. Okay, Martin Luther wasn't perfect. What he did was wrong there. All the other things that God used him was amazing. But, you guys, we have to understand that. That's why we have to realize, look, we have to be sensitive, just knowing about that history, to be clear, saying, look, what, they, what was done in history was evil, and it was, might have been done in the name of Christ, but nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say to do that at all. So that I would call them so-called Christians, okay? So that's just something to know, um, it, it, it just as far as that's, that's, the, that's part of the, the history that the Jew, Jewish people know, because wherever they've gone throughout the world, they've always been picked on. I mean, the, the pogroms in Russia, Poland, Spain. Yeah, you know the, who, where the, who led the worst persecution in Spain? <laughs> God speaking. <laughs> who are the kings that sent Christopher Columbus over here? Ferdinand and Isabella. They were the worst persecutors of the Jews. Amazing. They just tort- They called Spain the hell for Jews. That, they were tortured and they kicked out. You know, it's just terrible what happened. You read it, it makes you want to vomit. And it was done in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm not saying Jesus condoned it, but just have that in mind, okay? 
as one of the things when we reach people, we think about reaching the Jews, you know, that's, that's what we have to keep in mind. But here, this time period is explained by Jesus saying, look, your house is left to you desolate. And it explains really what's happened for the last 2,000 years. The Jews, Paul says it in Romans, that they have been set aside, not forgotten or forsaken, but they've been set aside for a time. It says in Romans 11, during the, what was this time period, is called the times of the Gentiles. Paul says this. Paul himself was a Jewish rabbi, become a Christian. He says, look, this time period is not in the Old Testament. Paul said several times that it was a mystery not revealed until the new covenant times that God was going to bring in the Gentiles into God's family, praise the Lord. We get grafted in, and then at the end of this time, when the times of the Gentiles is complete, this is Romans 11, that then God was going to step back in and bring the Jews back in. And that's what we're going to look at now. Your house is desolate, and that's this time right now. They're under punishment by God for rejecting Him. It's hard to hear, but that's exactly what Jesus said, himself a Jew. But then he says this, it does, the story doesn't end here. This is what he says, for I tell you, verse 39, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had just yelled this to him on Monday, the triumphal entry. They were quoting this. He says, you won't see me again until you say the same thing the next time. Chapter 24 and 25, by the way, is all about the next time. We're going to get into that. It's about the end of the age. That's what Jesus calls it. So we're going to be doing a lot of, boy, looking up Revelation and Daniel and all these prophecies that he refers to. But know this, that this is referring to the future hope for the Jews of being brought back in. There is a promise in the Old Testament in Zechariah, listen to this, where that the one who had been pierced that's in the prophecy, the one who had been pierced, when, they, when he returns, Israel will mourn, will repent and return to him. Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him, mourning is repentance, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. So important, the one whom they have pierced, that's right out of Isaiah 53, the, one of the most central passages on the suffering servant, the, the son of man who's going to come, verse uh, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the, Lord, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The promised suffering servant was one who's been pierced. Zechariah says, the one whom they have pierced is going to return. And when they see him, they will repent. Now, why, I, I, we know who this is. We know this is Jesus, but notice this right here. In Acts 1, 9 through 11, the disciples had just said, hey, you're risen now. Are you going to restore your kingdom now? He says, no, it's not for you to worry about the times yet, but here's your job. 
And he says, go into Jerusalem and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Then they're sitting there. Jesus goes ascending to heaven. They're sitting there just gaping, going, oh my goodness. He's ascending on the clouds from the Mount of Olives. Okay, here's what, here's what, the, what happened then. And when he had said these things, Acts 1, 9 through 11, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Cloud, he's riding on the clouds. That's out of Daniel. Chapter 7, the Son of Man would come riding on the clouds. And he says, A cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, those are angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gaping or looking into heaven? This Jesus, whom was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what does that mean? He went up on a cloud, he's going to come down on a cloud to which Mount of Olives, it's, it's across from Jerusalem. It's right there, okay? It's a valley, the Garden of Gethsemane is down there. There's the temple on Jerusalem, Mount Zion. This is in fulfillment of Zechariah 14.4. On that day, the day of the Lord, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall split in two. And it goes on to talk about more stuff. So Jesus is the one whom they have pierced. And when he returns, he's going to conquer, and that's when they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But check this out. I'm going to finally read from Romans 11, so you don't just hear me saying he's going to save Israel. Zechariah 12 says they will see him whom they have pierced, and they will all mourn and get, get what? Saved. Here it says in Romans 11, Paul, a Jewish rabbi, says this, lest you Gentile Christians be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, this age that we're in now. And when it's done, okay, then something else is going to happen. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, there's that word, huh? They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. All this is saying there is hope in the midst of this scathing indictment by Jesus. There is hope for the future. God will complete his plan of redemption. Jesus accomplished redemption, but one day will return to gather his people in mercy to reward his own and to recompense the rebellious. All right, there's a future for Israel. God is faithful. When you look at what has been happening to the Jews over 2,000 years, we know now why it's happened. They rejected their Savior, their King. But He is going to save them one day. Why? Because that's what He does. God is faithful. God is powerful. God is mighty. and he's, We can trust Him. So, takeaway for, for, for us here. Folks, when you're witnessing, people are going to reject you. 
Should you be angry at them? No, have anguish. Keep praying for them and don't stop witnessing to them. Keep loving them. We're in a world where things seem out of control. Oh my goodness, it seems so nuts. Who's still in control? God is. And he has a plan of redemption he's going to accomplish. And it's going to come to fruition exactly when, where, and how he's decided. Rest in that, folks. In the meantime, let's shine. That's our job. We are to shine for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray and then we'll uh, finish up. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, for your saving love, your compassionate care, the comfort you provide us. Lord, the blessings we get as your followers are just mind-boggling. We have access to the spiritual riches in the heavenly places. We, we are considered spiritually, as your children, seated at your right hand right now. We don't feel it all the time, that's for sure. We don't act like it either. But God, in your mercy and your grace and your saving love, we... we we, that's our only hope. And we, because of that, we have confidence. We are anchored to you, Lord Jesus. You're our, our shelter for the storm. You're the rock we stand on, and we love you. Thank you, God. Thank you for everyone here. Thank you that we get to be your people, to live for your sake. God, glorify yourself through this church. Amen.